it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On June 10th, Chris McShane tweeted that Curtis Granderson should play over Jay Bruce when Ioannis Cespedes returns. These are some of the responses he got on Twitter. This is probably the worst tweet of the week. Easily. Hashtag clueless. That is absolutely stupid. I don't know how anybody can still think that. Branderson shouldn't be playing over me. Fuck out of here. Amazing how easy it is for people to prove they know shit about baseball. CNN fake news. Hey Mets fans, welcome to episode 242 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, thank you for joining us this week. Hope you enjoyed our little intro with Chris reading some mean tweets. That was uh, that was a lot of fun, and Chris Chris is going hard on the Granderson thing. He bought a jersey this week, so uh, look forward to more Granderson trolling as the season goes on from Chris. 
Chris and I were joined today by two of our friends who have way more knowledge about scouting and minor league players and the 2017 first-year players draft than uh, we do. So Alex Nelson and Steve Saipa sat in with us today to talk about the Mets draft and the system in general. So here is that conversation. Well, we are joined on the show this week, not just by my usual co-host, Chris McShane, but we have some uh, some friends, some special guests, some folks who actually know what happened in the draft, unlike Chris and myself, who uh, might fake it a little bit, but we have two guys who really know what they're talking about. We have uh, Steve Saipa and Alex Nelson. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I'm going to start off with a very, very simple question. Which player should I pre-order a jersey for today? Uh, you can never go wrong going with the number one with the first round pick. Okay. So when I lose twenty bucks on this, I blame you, Alex. You sure can. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's let's start with that first round pick. David Peterson is the first pick for the Mets. He is a left handed pitcher. He is originally from Colorado. He went to college at the University of Oregon. Uh, he's a big dude, six foot six. What should Mets fans know about uh, David Peterson? Well, he, he's not the most exciting uh, prospect going because he, he doesn't have that sort of monster upside that I think a lot of uh, a lot of fans kind of crave from, from their first round draft picks. But that said, he, he is a guy who seems to really know what he's doing on the mound. He, he has enough stuff to certainly get by. Um, he, he throws. Uh, he sits in the low 90s and and will brush 94 or so, which is pretty good velocity velocity from a uh, from a left-hander. And he's got a very good slider and uh, supposedly has a very good changeup, but uh, I I've never seen it to be perfectly honest. Steve, anything to add to that? Uh, that sounds about right. I mean, he's a guy. He has not the highest ceiling, but he's a high floor pitcher. Uh, it's a solid bet to you know move up the ranks probably gets a major league time um you know like alex said nothing he throws is really gonna maybe thrill you you know his his repertoire is kind of not the most exciting you know but he is a he's a solid guy um i don't think though that in the major leagues we can expect any 20 strikeout games like he did against arizona state a couple of weeks ago do either of you guys think there was a player the mets completely glossed over with this pick that they, that you would have taken a risk on instead of uh, Peterson? Or was he a, a pretty safe but good choice for this place in the draft? You know, I think he was a, he, he was a, probably a pretty, pretty good pick. Um, I had my eye on Logan Wormoth, uh, UNC's shortstop, uh, who's a very polished player with a, with a beautiful line drive swing, uh, plays probably – Play shortstop well, but there's some question as to whether he'll be able to pull it off uh, as a pro. So there's sort of a Gavin Caney uh, sort of profile there. But um, I still believed in him, and uh, that's probably who I would have picked. But that said, this being the Mets and the uh, them having uh, Ahmed Rosario in the wings, uh, going for David Peterson is not a, a bad decision uh, on, in the on the whole. Steve, any dissenting opinions there? Uh, personally, I wasn't the biggest fan of the selection, but it's not like it's a bad selection either. Uh, there were two guys that I would have preferred. I think that would, 
that still would have been available when the Mets picked the 20. One was Jaron Kendall, who was a high school outfielder. Um, earlier in the year, he's kind of projected to be in the top 10, but he fell a lot because there were uh, strikeout concerns. But Ken- I mean, he's a, a, a Kendall very... was definitely. I'm oh, sorry, Kendall was definitely in the in the talk for for the top overall pick going going into the year. Yeah, there's a lot of concerns about his strikeouts and um, his ability to hit with a wooden bat and things like that. But I mean, if you're drafting, you know, a kind of prep outfielder, you know, you have to expect that there needs to be a lot of time to develop. And you know, if if the Mets selected him, you know, he has warts and everything, but you work with that. Um, I um yeah no I just I'm curious with Peterson um, if I can bring it back to him for a second you know college pitchers I guess we probably expect that he'll pitch a bit for Brooklyn just to sort of you know round out his his work for the year but when he gets his first real assignment where do you see him ending up given the you know the age and and where he's at already in his career I uh, you know. This uh, Mets regime kind of plays it safe with prospects, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him start out at uh, at Columbia. But that said, I think uh, an aggressive uh, assignment to St. Lucie wouldn't be out of place for him. All right. Yeah, agreed. I mean, he pitched a lot of innings this year. I don't know, just slightly over 100. That's about 20 more. Then he will jump out 25 more than he did last year. If you figure in Brooklyn, he gets maybe if, if they send him to Brooklyn this year, he gets maybe, you know, another 20 innings. That's about almost 50 innings over his, uh, you know, established uh, highs. So I think that they'll kind of take it, take the safe route with him and just kind of send him down to Colum- to uh, Columbia and, you know, let him work slowly from there. Yeah, I agree. I given his workload, which was slightly concerning this year, um, it makes all the sense in the world to uh, to make him, uh, to take it easy with him, let him sort of rest up a bit for the remainder of the year. Is this a very uh, Aldersonian pick? Does this seem like a, uh, you know, something that's been very much in line with how the Alderson regime has ran their drafts? Um... You know, I I suppose so. Uh, they they do seem to take it, uh, play it pretty safe in the first round, and I think along those lines, uh, this certainly fits. They also really like um, uh, pitchers with with with, with uh, heavy fastballs and uh, sort of a, a good strong knowledge of the game. And uh, I, I think David Peterson really fits in uh, that profile. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that, that that is an Aldersonian or, or really a Tommy Tannis type of pick. Mm-hmm. Of all their first round picks, he's definitely, I think, the, the safest bet out of everyone. I mean, Nimmo, Caccini, Smith, they were, you know, high schoolers. So the development could have gone anywhere with those guys. They didn't have the first round pick in 2015, and then last year with Dunn, he was, you know, there's there's still a lot up in the air with him. So um, Peterson is definitely, I th- I would say, the safest out of all of those first round picks. 
Between him and Conforto, yeah, I, oh, I would and say Conforto. so. Wow, I completely forgot about Conforto. <laughs> <laughs> you he doesn't Terry seem Collins. like a draft pick anymore because, you know, he's done what he's done. And that's um, all you can ask for. Yeah, actually, so I know teams always say, no, 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 no. And I know most, most people say, no, teams never do this. But do you think, given the options that they had, that just sort of the context of what they know they have in the rotation and – I don't want to, you know, put a timeline on Peterson, but if they think, hey, maybe this is a guy who 2019 might be capable of being a four or five starter, and, you know, that's something we think we could use at that point. Um, I don't want to label him as that or whatever, but do you think that factors in at all, even though they deny it, or is it is it really truly just this was the guy that they wanted at that time? I, I don't think so. I, I think they mostly just take – the, the player that looks most appealing to them. And uh, if he's if he is able to contribute as soon as 2019 uh, as a uh, permanent fixture in the rotation, I, all the better. But uh, I don't think that they are necessarily making their decision based upon that. It, it really is just best player available. And, and anybody who does otherwise is just shooting themselves in the foot. There's too much uncertainty. Now, here's a question that most prospect people hate, so I apologize in advance. Uh, can you give us a comp or two for maybe what No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Come on. I had to ask for the listeners. Come on. You know, David Peterson is a tough I, – I said I tweeted this last night, and I think that he's a tough guy to sort of peg because he doesn't necessarily look – or pitch like any uh, any any pitcher pitching in uh, any starting pitcher pitching in the big leagues right now. Um, so I'm I'm kind of struggling with a comp for him. I don't know, Steve. Do you have anybody? Not really. Any solidly built kind of middling uh, left-hander? I don't know. You, you don't see very many left-handers who uh, have the potential to sort of be a uh, a ground ball heavy workhorse in the middle of a rotation and uh, I'm hearing Chris Young here guys <laughs> <laughs> Sure, why not? No, I'm not I'm, I'm not really thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard um, I've heard people say Mark Burley, but I mean it's not really a good match with the fastball. I think Peterson is a better yeah. fastball. Uh, but in terms of kind of workhorse durable left-handers you know that that much is is good yeah i can kind of see that from from a sort of a, an overall value perspective but he he won't pitching up there he won't look a whole lot like mark burley no no all right uh chris any other peterson questions no i think that's it for now um I'm sure we'll have some more once we see him in some sort of Mets affiliated uniform, but, but yeah, I, I, maybe I'll catch him with Brooklyn at some point later this summer. Yeah, that could be fun. Uh, that brings us to their second round pick, Mark Vientos, uh, third baseman from uh, from Florida. Let's see, where did he go to college? Or is he a high school student? High school student, American Heritage High School. Um, let's talk about. Let's talk about Mr. Vientos. Um, what do you guys think of this pick? Well, this is definitely a pick that has uh, a little more um, sex appeal, if you will. 
um, because uh, there is that sort of monster upside to this pick. He might have he might have as much upside as anybody any position player in this draft not selected in the uh, in the top ten. Let's say um, he's got um, some outstanding uh, bat speed and. Uh, He's currently playing shortstop, but uh, there is absolutely zero chance he plays shortstop as a pro. He, he's going to move over to third. Um, he's not a great athlete in terms of he doesn't have a lot of speed, but it really will all come down to his bat. Um, he's got he's got a very tall, lanky frame with long limbs. Should have great plate coverage and uh, should should be able to use those limbs to to sort of jack balls out of the uh, uh, over the outfield wall. So th- there is a very high ceiling here. Steve, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's <clears throat> he's an exciting profile if everything develops well. You know, if his hit tool continues coming along, if he's able to show that power, you know, the in-game power. Um, the fact that he's not the most athletic is a little worrisome for me, especially since he's still so young, you know, kind of 18, uh, 17, turning 18. But, I mean, there's still so much time between now and when we can realistically expect to see any kind of impact. So there's a lot of, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's there's just so many different variations on what can happen that, you know, it's too early right now to get bummed or to get excited or anything like that. He is the youngest player in this draft class, and uh, that uh, certainly uh, works in his favor. And uh, one guy that I bring him up all the time uh, is uh, that especially comes to mind this this time around is uh, Harold Martinez. Uh, Harold Martinez, I believe, was draft eligible for the first time in 2008. And he was a shortstop out of South Florida, just like Vientos, and uh, also just like Vientos, really kind of disappointed in the spring and uh, caused his, his stock to drop. And he ended up uh, attending uh, uh, the University of Miami instead and uh, just just never really pulled it together, never, never turned that sort of... Uh, raw ability into uh, usable game skills and he's still kicking around I think it's the Phillies system but uh, you know that that sort of risk does uh, does exist here also where Uh, do you oh sorry go ahead go ahead Chris oh yeah no I think my biggest question is and I and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves but given the way they conducted the draft overall um do they sign this guy? And would you think? Would you predict that they'll sign him, or uh, do you think he's good enough that he might decide to uh, to forego that? Well, I mean, the Mets certainly left it, or certainly made it possible for them to sign him. <laughs> I have no idea what kind of uh, demands he has. I'm, I'm I, we. From where we stand, it's very difficult for anybody who hasn't spoken to the kid to really know what his uh, what sort of expectations he has in terms of an offer. But um, they didn't draft anybody else in the top ten 
who will uh, who will uh, take up a lot of uh, uh, monetary resources. And in fact, they they drafted a lot of people who, uh, particularly particularly in the back half of the uh, top ten, who are going to take virtually none. So uh, there will be money there to spend, whether they choose to spend everything on him or but or perhaps spread the money around a little more we'll have to see but the possibility certainly is there that they can sign him and uh i would be expecting a uh, a signing right now is this the uh sort of consensus most exciting mets draft pick of this uh year Pro- i would well, say mostly. probably um Bryce Hutchinson, who is their uh, 12th round pick, is probably the only other person in the uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I would say that Vientos' raw athletic ability and the fact that he's a position player and uh, that he can make such an impact with the bat down the road probably gives him the edge. All right. Anything else to add about... Uh... But Vientos, or are you guys ready to move on? I mean, I think that even though he has a commitment to college and everything, I really don't see, you know, other than him really, really wanting to get a degree as a youngster, but I really don't see the purpose of college. I mean, unless he's gunning to be selected, you know, 1-1 in a couple of years, there's nothing wrong with being selected, you know, 59th overall. But but that is a possibility with Vientos. Right, right, it is. He could at- especially in Miami, just absolutely tear it up. And, and we will be talking about him 1-1 one, one, uh, two years down the line. I mean, as a fan who knows nothing, it's exciting to hear that the Mets might have drafted somebody in the second round who conceivably could have 1-1 one, one talent in a couple of years. So that's um, that's pretty exciting from, from where I sit. Um, all right, let's, let's do... A, Anyone you guys want to talk about? Steve, we'll start with you. Who's who's somebody else the Mets drafted that you wanted to uh, spend some time chatting about? Uh, there's a couple of prep players that they drafted um, in between rounds 10 and 20, but I'm not really going to get into them because the jury's out on whether or not these guys are going to sign. But one player who probably is going to sign is their fourth-round pick, Tony DeBrell, who was a, a Kennesaw State right-hander. Uh, he's a pretty interesting profile, I think. He uh, has a fastball, sits low to mid-90s, tops out at about 95, gets some sink on it. And then he has kind of a full pitch uh, mix to complement it. He has an above-average slider, uh, you know, average to above-average. He has a changeup that's pretty good. You know, some, some guys have it just as good as the slider. Kind of has a get-me-over-curveball. And his general, his, his biggest issue kind of has been his control, but I mean, just kind of having looked into him a little bit, you know, there's some minor things that I've seen that could kind of be tinkered with to help out his control. And obviously, you know, professional coaches are going to see a lot more things than that. So it could be, uh, he could be a factor, you know, in a few years, not, not as much uh, upside as Peterson, but he's not, uh, you know, there's nothing to sneeze at either. Alex, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I, I, I think I do. He's sort of a compromise between a uh, sort of your traditional college pick and, and a raw high school pick, and that 
he is an accomplished pitcher at the college level who has had success, but there are also obvious things that you see in him that you can work with and hopefully fix and maybe turn him from a, uh, uh, a very good college pitcher, uh, to a, uh, to hopefully a, a very good pro pitcher. So he, there's a little bit of upside to him that you don't typically see uh, in the fourth round, but it, it will take some work to, get, to to bring that out. Where do you guys project him starting the season next year? Columbia, I think. Yeah, it sounds about right. I don't even, if he does sign, I don't even know if he's going to pitch at all this year. Because I mean, they really abused him. Yeah, he. Uh, Kennesaw State isn't exactly uh, thinking about very many <laughs> uh, kids' pro futures. Alex, who's your guy you want to talk about? Um, it. There probably isn't a whole lot, like, like Steve said, the. Um, the Mets did draft a uh, three prep pitchers who are very, very interesting. Uh, they'll be smart signings if, if they can't, or I shouldn't say smart signings. It would be great if they could sign all three. They're not going to be able to sign all three. Uh, those are 12th rounder Bryce Hutchinson, uh, who we briefly talked about before. Uh, 19th rounder C.J. Van Eck, or Ike, not sure how that's pronounced. And uh, uh, Jake Etter, who was drafted in the 34th round. Um, all three of these guys have pitchers' bodies. Uh, Van Eyck, in, in particular, was um, seen as a uh, uh, sort of a top arm coming into the season, but he's had some forearm trouble, and it, there's no chance. I, I don't think he'll sign just because uh, it. it I think it's pretty close to 100% that he's going to need Tommy John surgery in the near future. Um, Hutchinson has a uh, the best chance to sign, and I think the Mets wouldn't have taken him in the 12th round if they uh, if they didn't agree. Otherwise, the only guy worth uh, that that has sort of impressed me is fifth rounder Matt Winokur. He was a he he has a lot of athleticism. He mostly played first base at Stanford. But he has the uh, he'll certainly play the outfield as a pro, and he's got some good bat speed. Uh, can ha- has some power to his profile, and I, I think he's very interesting. Steve, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I really like Winokur's swing. It's so smooth. It's so smooth. <laughs> I want you guys to fight about some stuff. Come on. Uh... <laughs> I'm just kidding. It would be nice if Eder signs. He's the 34th pick, but I feel like there's zero chance whatsoever. I mean, he's a guy that yeah. he's touched 94, 95 as a left-hander at a, you know at a, um, in high school. So there's he, you know, he's committed to Vanderbilt. And so Vilder, yeah, considering their track record of success with uh, top top high school prospects, <clears throat> he's another guy we could be talking about in the first round three years from now. So, you know, I know we've talked about a few picks here and there, but overall, how would you guys grade this draft? And obviously, you can't really grade a draft for five or so years after, but just overall, the first impressions in terms of who the Mets took, what their philosophy was, 
is this a good draft? Is this uh, an okay draft? Or do you feel this is a poor draft? Steve, go ahead. Um, the class as a whole, I think, was kind of weak. Uh, at the top, there were a lot of, you know, mid-ceiling kind of college pitchers and a bunch of risky uh, prep guys. And the Mets double-dipped, you know, with their one and two picks and got one of each. So that's good. But as a result of some of those prep guys that they picked, you know, after round 10, um, they... Well, let me rephrase that. After they picked those their first two guys, uh, they did a lot of uh, selections that are probably going to be under slot guys. So if Vientos doesn't sign, if you know Hutchinson or Van Eyck or some of those other prep guys that were selected, you know, after ten don't sign, the system is kind of not really going to get that big talent infusion that you'd want it to get because there's so many you know uh, under slot college senior picks that were selected specifically to save money. So kind of where we're gambling on the signing of those kind of couple of high upside prep guys. Yeah, I agree. Um, they seem to be putting a lot of eggs in the baskets, uh, the baskets of David Peterson, Mark Vientos and Bryce Hutchinson. Um, if they fail to sign any of the three, it's it's just not a very good draft for me. Um, round six through ten, literally, are all middle relievers, uh, at least in my eyes. Marcel Renteria might have a little bit more uh, potential than the others, but I I, st- I still can't pro- pro- project anything more than a middle reliever out of him. So it's it's very very difficult to give a draft that's so top heavy um, a high grade right now. Makes a lot of sense. Um, let's, let's look a little bit big picture here in terms of the Mets system in general, you know, over the last few years, the Mets have graduated a lot of pitching prospects out and the sort of general consensus about the Mets system right now is that it's pretty weak up top does this do a little bit to strengthen their system? Do you think that this is still that most of these players are still so far away it's hard to judge? Where is the Mets system after this draft? Alex, why don't you start? I I, I don't think it changes a whole lot. I mean, David Peterson will uh, slide in, and and that will be the biggest help to the system right now. Vientos is still too far away to get anything more than say a back end of the top twenty. Um of the Mets system grade. And that, that's just not going to uh, boost the, the system as a whole up very much. Um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty much status quo. Steve. Yeah. I uh, agree with Alex. I mean, assuming let's say the first five selections all sign Peterson, Vientos, um, Quinn, Brody Quinn, Tony DeBrell, and Matt Winokur. I mean, those guys are not, with the exception of uh, Vientos, who is years and years away, and Peterson, none of those guys are really going to make a big splash. And they're certainly not going to help, you know, the, the kind of top of the system. You know, in, in a year or two, you know, Peterson could be pitching in Binghamton, 
maybe even Las Vegas. Debrell, same thing. He could be, you know, St. Lucie, um, Binghamton, whatever. But nothing is going to be, you know, there's no immediate change to things. Do you feel that, because what, what number draft was this for the Audison regime? Seven, right? Seven. Seven. And how many for the Tannis uh, at the top? Four? Six. No. Six? Okay. How have you guys felt that they've done overall as a uh, as a drafting organization? Well, you got to remember that we uh, that before Tannis there was Chad McDonald for a year, and before that it was Rudy Tarasis. And uh, I I mean I wrote a chapter in a book about how much I hated the Rudy Tarasis drafts. <laughs> so I mean they're in they're in much better shape. It sometimes I do wish that the uh, Mets drafts would sort of roll the dice a little bit more, uh, go for that sort of high-end talent a little bit. But that said, they are in much better shape and have been in much better shape for for quite a long time now. And and a lot of that does have to do with just solid drafting, really from from one through twenty of every draft that they've uh, overseen. Yeah, great. I mean, not every player has worked out as we would have wanted them to, but I mean, you can't predict that on the draft night or before, you know, when, when everyone's making up their boards and a lot of it is just, you know, consequence too of where the Mets are drafting. I mean, it's not like we're drafting one, one every year and just making bad picks with the picks that they've gotten, you know, with the selections they've made, I think they've made pretty good choices and it's not like and at any point can you definitively say, like, wow, this is a terrible choice. This guy was available and is clearly so much better. I mean, the only draft pick that I sort of go back on and wish that they had taken somebody else really go, goes back to the Brandon Nimmo um, selection because that was a very strong draft. I didn't have Brandon Nimmo in my top, let's say, my top 30. Um, and that that was really the only pick that I, I disagreed with and it was still a defensible pick Chris any questions hmm no nothing nothing related to this draft um, I guess I would just say you know uh, Alex since you know since we uh, have you on on an annual basis <laughs> any anybody else in the system i know you you're you've always been uh you know specialized in the amateur side of the the game and and the draft and that's you know uh, your your legacy uh your writing legacy on the site and everything um but of the guys who have been in the system a little bit longer uh you know everybody knows i met ahmed rosario at this point um you know he might be a major leaguer sometime in the near future <laughs> Uh, we hope <laughs> any, any other guy who stands out to you right now, let's say maybe like, and you know, below triple a, anybody who particularly has your attention that you're excited to see, uh, wear a Mets uniform in the next year or two. Well, every year. And, uh, I know Jeff Paternostro always asks me this, uh, after a draft, I pick one guy after the, uh, after the first 10 rounds, who has who not earned a large bonus, so no Eric Adele, no Kyle Allen going back to, to my first draft, um, 
I always pick one guy who I sort of follow throughout their careers. And, and the guy that I'm most excited about right now is Jordan Humphreys. Um, he, he was a very, he was a local guy who I uh, didn't, didn't get to see pitch, even though he was literally pitching right in my parents' backyard. And, uh, but I, I spoke to a lot of people, or I spoke to a couple people, I should say, who really liked what they saw out of him. And I was very excited when the Mets did draft him. And uh, thus far, he's looking pretty good. Nice. Yeah, I know he. You know, he certainly made a name for himself um, as somebody who might not have gotten a lot of attention in the past. So that's encouraging. I know. I know Jeff's dude, Chris Matt, has been, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. letting things up lately too. And they're both still in Columbia, right? Uh, last I looked. Yes. All right. I do read the farm reports. I just don't have a <laughs> picture perfect memory of them. Um, I, 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 how can I put this question? That doesn't. It's not going to sound totally stupid. Um, of of all, let's say after the fifteenth round, who would be the player that you wouldn't be surprised to one day? be that great story that I was drafted in the 32nd round and I'm now starting a game in the World Series. Who's the player from this draft do you think drafted way down that has the potential to be that that big, that big great story four or five years from now? Well, the draft only ended a couple hours ago. So <laughs> I'm, I'm still sort of making my way through. I've only really <clears throat> sort of really sort of evaluated through Aaron Ford in round 21. Um, you know, the, the guy who kind of, who, who's kind of speaking to me right now is Carl Stadoir. He's the 18th round <laughs> guy in New Mexico. And he has, um, he has some absolute power and, and the swing is a little on the long side, but it's not super long. Um, he, he's probably first base only, even though he's playing third base. Uh, he'd probably be my the guy that I'm following right speaking right now, uh, not knowing who's going to sign, who else is going to sign and who's going to sign for what. Steve, what about you? I mean, I haven't made it past the, uh, 10th round so far. Slacker. Yeah. (laughs) I I literally took off the last two days and I was at the computer all day yesterday. And today I just I started I made breakfast and I was just like I just can't sit here anymore. It's pretty tough, isn't it, Steve? I uh, know, I know. <laughs> I haven't showered in like two days. My hair is all crazy. I, uh, I I remember a lot of nights being up till four o'clock in the morning writing writing the Amazing Avenue uh, draft reports. Mm-hmm. And uh, you definitely have my uh, sympathy and, and a little pe- little bit. Of, of envy also. I kind of miss it. Oh, wow. All right. We got that on the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't show where to start up again. just means that there's, there is a little piece of me somewhere buried inside that misses writing these reports. It is yeah. fun. It is definitely fun. Instead, I just tweet about everybody. <laughs> 140 ca- characters is a lot easier. <laughs> hey, it's good enough for the president, right? That's right. <laughs> uh, any parting words, gentlemen, about this draft or the Mets system or anything else related to the Mets minor leagues? 
I don't have anything. But. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think we've said it all. <laughs> the book has been written. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And um, Chris and I will be back in just a minute to answer your email. All right. Well, we have an email from our friend uh, David Ramos, who sent in this query. By the way, he said he sent this email in like over a week ago, which there is some context needed there because the Mets season looks ever slightly better now, mainly because the Nationals have been. Did you say pure garbage before, Chris? Is that the term you used? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, as we're recording, they lost thirteen to two. I think was the final. It was certainly the score in the ninth inning. So let's just say they lost thirteen to two <laughs> to the Braves. Uh, they've lost five to six. So they're coming into the series with the Mets at City Field about as bad as they've been all year. Um, you know, you heard it on the broadcast a little bit as the Mets were getting blown out on Tuesday night, and Gary Keith and Ron found plenty of other things to you know occupy the airtime as they do very well in blowouts. Uh, but as they were talking about that, they brought up, uh, you know, some of the sniping that had gone on within the Nationals clubhouse about the bullpen being so bad. Uh, and they, you know, to a certain extent, I think we can have a tendency to write off, you know, clubhouse chemistry and that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of that is that, you know, we would generally say it's it's difficult to measure, right? You can't really right. it's hard to quantify, quantify it. it, so it's hard to... So it's hard to talk about it. But I do think, you know, former players might have a tendency to generally, you know, hate change and, and you know, not be open to new ideas and that kind of thing. But I think even though it's been a long time since Keith and Ron played, uh, when they discussed it, I thought it was a valuable discussion of, you know, when one component of a team starts to be publicly uh, unsatisfied about another one, that it can really get out of control quickly. And I just bring all that up because if there's one thing we know about the Nationals, if they have a, a perfect idea of how to keep everybody on the same page and, and keep the team harmonious. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, I, I'm still realistic, you know, as we record this, uh, this Cubs finale, the Cubs series finale, I should say, uh, it has not been decided yet, but regardless of the outcome of this game, uh, you know, I know the Mets odds of winning the division are low, but we've been reminded over the last week that natitude is a thing. And maybe, just maybe, uh, there will be enough of it to, you know, turn this season around for the Mets. So with that... <laughs> yeah, that context is important here. So David says, I'm not saying I'm giving up on 2017, but I'm just saying, you know, if we went in to look at this year as just one of those years, I would still be optimistic for 2018. Why? The core is still young and talented, all men as Cespedes are under 28, so that's a big start. Let's say we could start looking at 2017 as a catalyst into 2018. What do you guys think of this? Number one, you can trade Bruce, Reed, maybe Walker. I would want back young power arms, but not top guys, because you won't get that. I'm referring to that 5'10", 170-pound AAA kid that throws 95, but everybody knows he'll never be a starter. The Mets don't have that much in the system, and I think they could trade for that. They should come in handy in 2018-plus for bullpen depth. Here's my big move. Can I get Herrera from Kansas City for Dom Smith right now? I think I can. Why? This is why. Herrera helps me this year and puts me in a place to have a strong pen for 2018. Herrera, Familia, Blevins, Watson as a free agent is a solid start. So why trade Smith? 
Do you guys recall a move made by the Mets in 1983 to acquire a gold glove first baseman, clutch player, leader, good hitter? Yes, analytics guys, I'm saying it's intangibles. Guess what? This free agency year, there will be a very similar guy available to Keith Hernandez. Eric Hosmer is a perfect fit, and the Mets will have a lot of salary coming off the books to add him. Uh, center field. That will can, be... I, can I interrupt with one thing real quick? Sure, of course. Sorry. Uh, no, just uh, I did read this email, but I had not read the intangibles part of the email <laughs> when I brought up the intangibles a few minutes ago. <laughs> just I just wanted to let everybody know that. Yeah. So again, back 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 to the email. So uh, <laughs> this would put a, a one through five of uh, Nimo and Lagaris, who would be platooning in center. Ahmed Rosario batting second. Eric Hosmer batting third. Yuan Cespedes batting fourth. Conforto batting fifth. Just thinking out loud, I believe Hosmer brings something to this team. A leader that has been there and done that. It's maybe not the end all be all, but he's still a young talent that would fit well. Plus, I'm afraid of Dom Smith being James Loney. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Um, let's let's address the uh, the Eric Hosmer thing first, Chris. On a on a scale of one to ten, where where ten is, you would definitely pull the trigger on signing Eric Hosmer to a fair deal, and one is uh, runaway screaming. Where do you fall on the Eric Hosmer scale? Uh. I want to say one, maybe <laughs> one and a half. <clears throat> I really don't like him. I might go as high as a three, but I wouldn't go any higher than a three. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. No, just, I mean, the ceiling is a guy who's like pretty good hitter, you know, above league average. And then the floor of his major league career is league average hitter at first base. Yeah, I just don't I don't know. I so the the overall concept of, you know, getting something for Smith that helps in the short and long term, uh, I'm not totally opposed to. And I'm not writing off the chance that he has a good major league career. But you know, in this scenario, I'd much rather give that market deal to Duda. Absolutely. And, you know, move on <clears throat> proceed accordingly with that um yeah my my thing with with hosmer so yeah, is it's you know i i wouldn't give up a first baseman that's going to be below average pep for power at first and just sign another below average power first baseman that seems like a wash to me right yeah yeah i mean so it's funny you know it's funny that loney is the the comp that you hear a lot and and you know, I mean, I, I get it. It's he's sort of a recent player who you know might profile similarly. Um, I think John Olerud is perpetually underrated, but that's sort of more. And, and I mean, man, I don't want to put those expectation on uh, expectations on Tom Smith because I don't really think that's fair. But you know, if you're going to dream on what that profile looks like, I think that's probably it you know not Loney's been around recently he played for the Mets obviously you know so he he comes up a lot more I guess is my point but Olerud's career high in home runs was 24 
and I mean, a 398 on base percentage in his career. So uh, let me just say, I'm not expecting Dom Smith to be that, <laughs> but you know, the, a guy who hits some home runs, a lot of doubles, that kind of thing. If you think Dom Smith is going to be a major league player, then I think he could at least be as good as Hosmer has been as a hitter and he might be a better defender. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. I, the, it, I, I like the overall creativity of it, the, you know, of the uh, the general concept here. I'm just this wouldn't be my uh, Amazing Avenue midseason plan, which has been bandied about in the Slack channel uh, for those who have given up on the season already. Uh, yeah, my you know I I do like the idea of replenishing the bullpen through trades. I think that's I think if they're going to sell off this year. Getting some bullpen arms is not the worst way to to use those players, but to me, if you're going to go after a first baseman that isn't named Lucas Duda, there has to be a a real chance at upgrading at the position, and I don't really see many first basemen out there that's a, that are a clear upgrade over Lucas Duda right now. I would give Duda a a fair market value contract and let him continue to be hashtag good. But that's just me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in theory, uh, we don't know the severity yet, but we know Neil Walker is hurt to some extent. We know Estrubal Cabrera is hurt. We know Jose Reyes has been one of the worst hitters in Major League Baseball. In theory, by the time you listen to this, and even if that is immediately when the podcast goes up, Ahmed Rosario might be making his Major League debut. But uh, I think I would need you know, a solid three, three and a half months, uh, basically the, the remainder of the season from today or, or very shortly after today from Rosario uh, to feel comfortable rolling into next year with Rosario and Smith as your, you know, top player uh, at a position. I have more confidence that Rosario can do that, but, you know, transitions to the major leagues can be, they can be weird. Um and as you look at the guys who depart after this season, I think you just – it's a question of how many guys who who will be really eligible or close to it are you okay with having as your starters at the beginning of the year. That That's kind of my thing. Yeah, I agree. So thank you for the email, David. We, we do appreciate it. Um, but if Chris and I were GMs, Hosmer wouldn't be on our team. But we're not the GMs, so who knows? You might be the genius that we're going to be quoting next year when Hosmer is holding the World Series trophy over his head while uh, playing for the Mets. But I wouldn't necessarily bank on that. This is Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio, and this week, instead of taking a tour around the National League East, we're just going to focus on the Washington Nationals, because that's who the Mets are playing in a pivotal four-game series starting on Thursday. It's going to run all the way through Father's Day on Sunday afternoon, so this is a long series with the Mets' biggest rival, although it's unfortunately not the rival they're most closely matched with, but... If they can take 
three or even four games of this series, that would be a big step towards ramping up their status or the Mets' status as a contender as we get closer and closer to trade deadline season. The problem with that is the Nationals are really, really, really good. If it wasn't for their bullpen issues, they'd be even better. It just popped up after they blew a game to Atlanta the other night that they've blown six games with multi-run leads coming into the eighth inning, which is just insane. Uh, The next closest mark was three. And yeah, the Nationals would would definitely be considered a World Series contender if they just won won, uh, half those games. They're considered a World Series contender anyway, but... They will probably handle that at the trade deadline. It's widely assumed that this club is going to trade for Chicago White Sox's Connor Connor Roberts, David Robertson, and that might be able to shore up things, although they've been gotten some decent work out of Coda Glover, and their rotation is, is really good at, at the front end with Max Scherzer and Steven Strasburg. Coda Glover has been shaky recently, giving up five runs to Oakland on June 4th. And then on the 10th, he gave up two runs and a loss to Texas. So he, his numbers are really good before that. Now, right now, they look really bad with a 5-12 ERA. But in 19 and a third innings, he has 17 strikeouts and four walks. I think he's going to turn it around again, although he probably won't be the closer after July. He'll probably just be a really good setup man. But... That is the one area where you can get to the Nationals. You can get to them in the bullpen. And the back end of their rotation isn't fantastic. I mean, they really only need two great guys in in Scherzer and Strasburg. And both those guys are doing what we come to expect them to do. So the Mets are going to have a tough time with that pair. And they'll also face Joe Ross and Gio Gonzalez this series. Joe Ross's numbers... He's pitching a little better than his ERA would indicate, and but on the other hand, Gonzalez is pitching a little worse. Gonzalez is walking more guys than he has since 2009, and that does not jive with the way his ERA has shrunk down. So maybe Wilmer Flores and company, since Gonzalez is a lefty, they can take him back down to earth a little bit. But I think Joe Ross is a, is a good pitcher despite his ERA. I think he's going to give... The Mets some trouble. But the real threat of this team, once you get past the, the, the good rotation and the struggling bullpen, is this, this lineup is just terrifying. And it all starts with Ryan Zimmerman, who's come out of nowhere to be one of the best hitters in the league. His, the jump he's made from last year when he, was, when he was struggling with injuries like he does every year except he's finally healthy now. Anyway, the, the jump in numbers is pretty staggering. He's making more contact. He's hitting a ton more line drives. His ISO is up 200 points to 353. So he's got 19 home runs, which is only a couple behind the young stud Aaron Judge in the Bronx. So Zimmerman, if he keeps at this pace... He could pretty easily surpass his career high in home runs, which was set all the way back in 2009 when he had 33, and he was one of the better players in baseball that year. His defense obviously isn't the same as it used to be, but 
he's rather excellent with the bat, thanks to that isolated power. He's, his map is 399, which is a little high, but it does jive with that elevated line drive rate. And he's slugging 726 with 19 home runs again. He is a beast, and it doesn't stop there. You've got Bryce Harper and Daniel Murphy as well, and that just makes this team really, really tough to deal with in the middle of the lineup. There's just not much you can do to get around. These guys are all stacked one after the other. Trey Turner at the top isn't exploding offensively the way that some thought he would. So there is one thing, one key for the Mets is to get Trey Turner out because he does make a lot of outs compared to the guys hitting behind him. And once he gets on base with Harper and then Murphy and then Zimmerman, you're in a lot of trouble. You're almost certainly going to give up a run there if Trey Turner's on first base with nobody out. That's just a really tough situation for any pitching staff to be in, let alone the Mets pitching staff, which had one good week. Hopefully it'll continue. We'll see Seth Lugo and Steven Matz again. They both pitched seven great innings in their 2017 debut, so hopefully that will continue. But the key is to get Trey Turner out. And then once you get past the big bats, because Jason Wirth just hurt his foot and Adam Eaton's out for the year, they do have there there is a, a little bit of a weakness down at the bottom of the lineup with Ryan Rayburn platooning with Brian Goodwin. And you also have Michael Taylor who's 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 hitting for some power and he still makes a lot of outs, but He's hitting better than he did last year, but you'd still you still want to get these are the guys you can get out. Your Michael Taylors and Brian Goodwins, even if they're they're hitting a little above their weight right now. The key here will just be getting getting outs where you can get them. And I didn't even mention Anthony Rendon, who's batting usually bats fifth for this team. He's been flapping between sixth in the batting order and cleanup recently due to a little Injury for, for Ryan Zimmerman, he, he just did recently come back. So, so it's, it's, it's Anthony Rendon is going to bat behind either Daniel Murphy or Ryan Zimmerman, and he's having, quietly, because of everyone else in the lineup, Anthony Rendon's having the season that a lot of people were hoping he would have last year. He came up as such a nice infield prospect, and now he's, he's finally really having that season where he's, he's getting on base more than he ever has, and he's hitting for a ton of power, 11 home runs, not a lot compared to the other guys in this lineup, but and he's making a ton of contact. For, his strikeout and walk rates are nearly identical. He's finally turned that corner into a really solid hitter who flies under the radar. He's, he's got to be one of the more underrated players in the league at this point. Also a good defensive player, and 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 his 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 war numbers he was nearly a 5 win fangraphs war player last year but kind of just mediocre hitting stats 270 348 450 is that triple slash line that we like to quote but this year his, his uh, on base percentage and power have taken a nice little jump and he's making even more contact so Really nice breakout year for Anthony Rendon. You don't hear his name brought up a lot. He's un- he's overshadowed in this lineup, but he's one of their more solid players, and he what what and he's part of what makes this Washington lineup almost impossible to deal with. So keep for the Mets, get Trey Turner out, 
score runs against Washington's struggling bullpen and hope for the best. You got to get two more good starts out of Lugo and Mats, and hopefully they can they can win this series. It's going to be tough, but that is your little preview for this four game set that is could be pivotal for the Mets if they if it goes one way or the other. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully the Mets do really well. This has been Aaron York from Mason Avenue Audio. Hey everyone, this is Steve Saipa, and I'm back again. And this time I'm going to go over our Monday League Plays of the Week for Week 10. I wasn't around last week, but... I want to give a shout-out to the guys that would have made the list if I was on. And on the pitching side, it would be Seth Lugo. And on the hitting side, it would be Desmond Lindsay, who, despite apparent rumors to the contrary, I'm not down on. So anyway, the Las Vegas 51s this week went 2-5, and five, which puts them at 25-39 and 39 for the year, which is 10 games behind the Salt Lake Bees for first place. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 2-3, and three, with a rain postponement, and that gives them a 34-23 and 23 record, which puts them four games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place. The St. Lucie Mets went 3-4 and four and had one of their games canceled, and as a result, they're an even 30-30 and 30 on the season, and that puts them seven games behind the Palm Beach Cardinals and gives them a magic elimination number of three. And finally, the Columbia Fireflies, who seem to sometimes be the only source of positive things when it comes to the minors this year, uh, they went a perfect 7-0, and which is the second time that any affiliate has done that, had a perfect week. And they're entering week 11 with a 36-25 and record, which puts them a half game behind the Greenville Drive first and gives them a magic number of 7. So, our pitcher of the week for week 10 is Las Vegas 51's right-hander, Rafael Montero. Montero pitched one game this week, and he went seven scoreless innings, allowing three hits, walking two, and striking out eight. So, uh, Rafael Montero. <laughs> it's actually funny, too, because the game that he pitched in this week, it was against the Solic Bees, and Cesar Pueyo was on the team, and he had a good night that night. And he's another guy that, you know, blossomed and peaked around the same time as Montero. So, um, Montero was never a super... Sure-fired, no-doubt prospect, you know, but man, the mighty have fallen. I mean, at his best back in 2014, 2015, um, he was a little bit of a risky preposition because preposition, his, his profile wasn't really that of a, you know, great prospect, and he had a pretty thin margin of error. Uh, his fastball sat about 90 to 93. Um, he had an average slider, average changeup, and basically he thrived because of his control. Uh, his size and his fly ball tendencies were kind of a red flag, and basically from the second that he made the major leagues, all those worst-case scenarios came true. He gave up a lot of hard contact, he gave up a lot of home runs, he wasn't able to pitch with that pinpoint control that he did in the minors, and, I don't know, all that stuff had kind of got in his head or whatever. And then... Obviously, that shoulder injury uh, didn't help things. And honestly, I think the Mets probably mismanaged that too. You know, given what we've seen lately regarding players and their medical issues, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Montero was an early case of that, that 
we didn't necessarily catch or notice because it wasn't really something on our radars yet, aside for the way that the aforementioned Cesar Pueyo was kind of handled. Um, but, you know, the Mets have a couple of guys like that in the system, a couple of guys like Montero right now, um, pitchers without bona fide plus pitches that are kind of more of the sum of their parts than anything else. Uh, P.J. Conlin, Jordan Humphreys, Harold Gonzalez, those guys come to mind. Those are guys that are on people's radars. Um, Conlin is closest to the majors, and he's really more of a finished product than any of those other two guys. Um, And he's definitely an undersized pitcher. Um, He's definitely a guy that has had success thanks to some good minor league control. Uh, So he might be the best comparison to Montero right now, even though he's a lefty. But if Humphreys and Harold don't develop as pitchers and they remain kind of guys with fringe to average fastballs and generic kind of nothing plus across the board in terms of their secondary stuff, I could see them fitting that kind of Montero archetype too. But, you know, I've liked Montero. I was a fan of him, you know, back in the day. And there are profiles that work in the minors and get good numbers and whatever. And when they get exposed to major league hitters, the jig's up. And it kind of sucks when, you know, I don't know, you get attached to those guys. Or not attached, but, you know, you just kind of root for them. And everything, you know, just like just like that, everything would just fall down um, like a house of cards, you know. And as a tangent, I didn't like House of Cards too much this season. <laughs> this season, I thought it started out strong, but kind of petered off. Um, it's an overhyped show, if you ask me. I don't know. I haven't really liked that show since like the second season, when when uh, he was the vice president and schemed his way up to the presidency. So nothing really on Netflix for me, I guess, except for random stuff and waiting for the next season of BoJack Horseman. And if a Rumble Ponies player was the hitter of the week, that would be a great segue. But unfortunately, a Rumble Pony player is not the hitter of the week. Uh, Instead, our hitter of the week is Columbia Firefly's first baseman, Dash Winningham. Uh, This is the second time now that he's been the hitter of the week. The first time he was, it came all the way back in week one. So this week, uh, Dash went 7 for 23. He had a double. He hit three home runs. Uh, drove in five, he walked four times, and he struck out six times. So Dash right now is hitting 252, 307, 451 on the season with 10 homers in 205 at-bats, um, all of that which was good enough to be named a South Atlantic League All-Star. But compare that to last season where he had 12 home runs in basically double the amount of games and at-bats. Uh... The biggest difference between Dash Winningham of 2016 and Dash Winningham of 2017 is that um, he had a lot more hand movement in his step uh, as he in his uh, step last year, and he moved the plane of his bat around a lot. Um, basically, to describe his setup to his swing, he kept his bat around his shoulders. And he wrapped it behind his head and then moved it down as he began his swing step. Um, this year, he's been a lot more upright at the plate. And he's kept his bat more upright, which has kept his hand steadier from his load all the way into um, you know the step of his swing. 
so he isn't he he isn't swinging and missing any more any less than he did last year, and he's on pace to about to strike out about the same amount as he did last year, which is a hundred times, which is about a twenty percent rate, which isn't the best, but it's not completely terrible either. But he is hitting the ball more squarely when he does make contact, and that could explain why his home runs have ticked up a bit and his isolated power is up. So uh, it's either that or spending time at Tim Tebow. You know, either or. So I'll take your pick. I don't know. Uh, Even though he's spending his second year at Columbia now and he's having a solid season, I don't think that the Mets are going to promote him up to St. Lucie for the second half. Like, they usually reward players that had, you know... Good, strong, solid first halves. It's not because of anything that he's done, necessarily, or hasn't done, but I think because Peter Alonso is the incumbent first baseman up at St. Lucie, or down in St. Lucie, and I don't think the Mets are going to be promoting him to Binghamton, uh, Dash is going to have to stay put. You know, Alonso was their second-round pick last year, and he was an advanced college hitter, but between the injury that limited his season last year... That ended it, really. And then the broken finger that ate a chunk of his season this year. And the fact that his you know swing is a little suspect, it's a little long. And the fact that he's hitting 147, 183, 265 right now. I don't think that he's getting a promotion to double-A. Um, Desh is actually a year younger than Alonso. Uh, he's only 21 right now. He's turning 22 in October. And Alonso is 22 right now, turning 23 in December. And that actually little it, it surprised me a little bit, you know. You don't realize, even though Dash has been around for a couple of years, how young he actually is, you know. Um, but even though, you know, their their skill sets are kind of similar, uh, with the biggest difference being that Alonso is believed to have been able to hit for a better average. But you know what? Um, if Alonso continues to struggle and Dash continues having succeed, in theory, the two could leapfrog each other in, you know, year and a half, two years, something like that. It's, you know, not that likely, I don't think. But you know what? It It's a possibility. I mean, baseball is a crazy game like that. So normally, I'd wrap things up there. But this week, I want to tack on a little extra. Because the Dominican Summer Leagues uh, have started, the DSL. And I just want to highlight some names of guys that might start popping up on people's radars. Alright, so here we go in no particular order. There's Johander Chorio, who is a five foot ten, seventy hundred and seventy five pound right hander from Venezuela. He throws um eighty seven and ninety two with a mid seventies curveball and a changeup. Next is Sebastian Espino. He is a Dominican shortstop who's likely to stay at short. Uh, he's a good fielder now, and some scouts think that he might be able to blossom into being a plus fielder. And at the plate, he is kind of more contact-oriented with the occasional doubles power. Next up is Ezekiel Pena. Uh, Pena is actually an American. He was born in Boston and he grew up in the U.S., but he moved to the Dominican Republic a few years ago, and he became eligible as a IFA as a result. Um, so he has a he has a thick six foot, two hundred pound frame, and that should probably allow him to hit for power. But his arm and his range are considered a little bit below average. So he's probably going to be stuck in left field. Next is uh, Giancarlo Soto. He's a Dominican center fielder that, unlike Pena, uh, might be able to stay in the outfield and might be able to stay in center uh, since he has above average range right now. 
and uh, thanks to an athletic frame, he might be able to add some speed. He has an advanced bat uh, with a compact swing and some strong wrists and advanced plate discipline, uh, but unfortunately, he's probably never going to develop that much power, and he has kind of below average arm. Next up is Jose Peroza. He's a six foot one, two hundred pound Venezuelan third baseman. Uh, he's country strong, and literally, he grew up on a farm in the country. Right now, he's considered to have an above average uh, raw power and above average arm, but unfortunately, he is most likely going to have a power over hitting profile, which means that he's might not even have enough power. Uh, excuse me, might not hit enough to. Uh, harness that power. Next up is Wilfred Estudillo, who we've already uh, had a bad joke on our Slack, private Slack channel. But that's aside, uh, he's a thick switch hitting Venezuelan catcher. Um, he's originally signed by the Red Sox, but he had that contract invalidated when, the, when Boston was banned from signing players uh, during the 2016 to 2017 signing period, so he signed with the Mets instead. Uh, he makes a lot of contact. He has kind of line drive double power right now, but he's really going to have to work uh, to stay behind the plate um, because all he really has is a good arm, but he's not really that great with the other uh, defensive rigors of the position, so he's going to need some time to develop his defensive game back there. Next up is Alexis Marquez. He's a Venezuelan shortstop turned outfielder who is transitioning to being a catcher because the Mets liked what they saw from him back there during a showcase. Um, he has a line drive gap power right now, but at six foot, 175 pounds, he should be able to add a little bit more power going forward. Uh, next up is Daniel Guzman. He's a lefty from Venezuela. Um, he has a good feel for pitching. He sits in the mid to upper 80s right now. He touches as high as 89. And he complements that with a mid-70s curveball and a solid uh, changeup that he has a good feel for um, at his young age. Next up is Sharivan Newton, who is a lanky 6'3", 160-pound shortstop from the Netherlands. Uh, he's a switch hitter. Uh, he's a strong arm. But right now he lacks power, so if he grows into his frame, uh, he might be able to add a little bit there. Next up is Uel Romero. He is a Venezuelan shortstop who's much more uh, defense-oriented than offense-oriented. Uh, he probably isn't going to be able to stay at shortstop because he has a fringy arm, but he does make up uh, for it with good footwork around the bag, good agility, good instincts, and a quick ball transfer. So maybe he will be able to stay uh, there longer than he should otherwise because of the arm. Next up is Tulio Garcia. He's a six foot two, two hundred pound athletic outfielder from Venezuela. Uh, he had surgery on his shoulder, um, his throwing arm, basically right after he signed. But the Mets knew about the injury and they still wanted to sign him. So that shows that at least their internal uh, scouts think that he has some promise. Uh, he's a nice, he has a nice left-handed swing. He's he's shown some pretty good strike zone awareness and a bit of pop for a kid uh, his age making him a potential corner outfielder that could hit for average or power going forward. Uh, next is Luis Santana, who is a Dominican uh, infielder. Though uh, Even though he's five foot nine and only 165 pounds, he might actually be uh, pound for pound the toughest guy in the entire Mets system 
because he's been training to be a boxer basically since he was nine years old. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to get into a fight with him. Uh, he doesn't really project for too much power. You know, again, he is only five foot nine, but because of you know how um, because of his upbringing and he's very athletic, he does make very loud contact. So maybe with uh, some tinkering of a swing, they could unlock some more power there. Next up is Wilmy Valdez. Uh, he is a right fielder slash first baseman. Uh, he basically has two tools. He has a really plus arm and he has some plus power. Uh, but he really hasn't shown too much potential with the bat, despite everything. And as a result, they actually might um, switch him to pitching at some point if the uh, hitting doesn't come around, because the arm is that strong. Also, he's six foot fucking nine inches. That's a very tall man. <laughs> um, and last up is uh, Alejandro Medina. He is a Venezuelan catcher. Um, he receives the ball well, but he kind of has a fringe average arm. But that should get better as he ages, um, you know, and gets a little bit more proficient behind the dish. And at the plate, he kind of has double power right now. But again, same thing. That could also tick up a little bit as he adds muscle and he ages and everything. So, all right, uh, that is everything now. Those are all the guys to just kind of keep an eye on. Obviously, most of these guys are not going to really progress. And... You know, it's there's not gonna we're not gonna have a situation like we did last year with Andres Jimenez, where a guy just impresses so much that he forces his way, you know, back to this, back over here to the states. No one of that list really has that kind of potential. So uh, those are our minor league players of the week for week ten, and those are some DSL kids to keep an eye on. And I will be back next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. chances of a draft pick being a bust are almost as good as that same draft pick turning into a star. In the crapshoot that is the MLB draft, regrets are abundant. Here are the top five instances in which the New York Mets regretted their selections. At number five, it's Butch Benton, the number six overall pick in 1976. There's a reason why you probably aren't aware of Butch. He was a September 1978 call-up and had a couple decent games toward the end of that season and was barely heard from again. Benton spent all of 1979 at AAA Tidewater. He made a brief appearance with the Mets in July and had one big league hit that season. He was dealt to the Cubs prior to 1981 and had just 80 more plate appearances in the majors. Now to number four and a much more well-known name, Billy Bean, taken as the 23rd choice back in 1980. 22 picks after the Mets took Daryl Strawberry. After making his way up through the minors, Bean got the call up in 1984. In 10 at-bats with New York, he had just one hit. In 8 at-bats with the Mets in 1985, he had two. That was all for his career in orange and blue. During that offseason, Bean was dealt to the Minnesota Twins in a trade that included Tim Tuffle. With four clubs over six years, he had two home runs and a paltry 215 batting average. His post-playing career, safe to say, has turned out far better. The Mets had the distinction of having the top selection in 1984's draft, and with it, they chose Sean Abner out of Mechanicsburg High School in Pennsylvania, who turns out to be the number three draft mistake in team history. 
Abner's progression through the minor league system was not as swift as other prized prospects. In fact, the Mets had seen enough by the end of 86. He became part of an eight-player package deal that sent Kevin Mitchell to San Diego in exchange for Kevin McReynolds. He made it to the Padres, but was far from a significant contributor. He then went to the Angels and White Sox before his career ended in 1992. His final stat line, a .227 average, 11 homers, 71 runs batted in, over 392 games. Now to number two, and a member of the infamous trio, Generation K. Paul Wilson threw in 170 games, posted a record of 40-58, and 58, had a 4.86 ERA, and 619 strikeouts. For a mid- to low-level draft pick, this wouldn't be seen as distressing. For someone who was the number one overall pick, this would be considered a bust. The blame for Wilson, taken first by the Mets in 1994 out of Florida State, can't be strictly on performance. Overuse in the minors led to chronic shoulder ailments. His only season with the Mets, 1996, saw him go 5-12 with a 5.38 earned run average. He would eventually miss the entire 1999 campaign due to more injuries in his shoulder. By 2005, his career was over. Wilson was once a number one, but not here. The top spot for the greatest draft mistake in Mets history goes to Steve Chilcott. The Mets took him number one overall in 1966, and it's hard to say what he could have been had injuries not gotten in his way. He dislocated his shoulder while playing for the Winter Haven Mets in the Florida State League in 1967. This would become a pattern. His ailment hindered his performance on the field. After one season in AAA, he was released by the Mets in 1971. Chilcott spent a short time in the Yankees farm system in 1972, but fizzled out there as well, and holds the dubious distinction of being one of two top overall picks to have never played a major league game. Now for the exceptionally painful part in Mets history. By taking Chilcott, it allowed the club with the number two overall pick, the Kansas City Athletics, to make their choice. The A's took Reggie Jackson. Only time will tell if any of this year's first-round selections join the list of early draft disappointments. But these five prove that the MLB draft is an imperfect science. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. Last week, I decided that I'd given up on the Mets because I think we've I think we've finally reached the point that the postseason just looks like too much of a long shot. So as soon as I said that, they go on a winning streak, and Steven Mass and Seth Lugo return as, you know, aces that we all expected or something, and Cespedes comes back with a grand slam, and they look good, and I was really worried I was going to take back everything I said. And then they got destroyed 14-3 last night because Zach Wheeler couldn't make it out of the second inning. And I, you know what, I genuinely don't know anymore what the season looks like. So, we're going to do something a bit different today, and instead of just talking about the standings, we're going to talk about, and what everyone is talking about and should be talking about, but whether it's time to start panicking about how this team is handling Ahmed Rosario, because we are almost definitely past Super 2. Every other team is calling up their top prospect if they think he can help, and Ahmed Rosario is still sitting in Las Vegas for whatever reason. I think the latest phrase was he needs more seasoning. 
I don't know what that means. I don't know what they think he has left to learn in Vegas. He's hitting 338, 379, 504. I know it's the PCL. I know stats look weird there. Every single person I've talked to that has seen him or watched game film or talked to people who have seen him say that he's ready. And if you think the season is dead, you bring him up and you throw him to the wolves and you see what he can do. If you think the season is not dead, you bring him up and he's going to be better than Jose Reyes. Whatever you do, however he looks, he's going to be better than Jose Reyes. I can pretty much guarantee it. And you know what? If I'm wrong, you can come yell at me. But I don't know the harm anymore. If he comes up and he fails, then he comes up and he fails. It happens. But you have to take the risk. And by you, I mean the Mets. You have to take the risk because that's just that's how prospects work. There's nothing... There's some arbitrary number that they've come up with, you know strikeout to walk percentage or he's not allowed to swing it more than seven balls out of the strike zone in a game that's unreasonable because what he does in triple a doesn't is not going to necessarily correlate to the majors we all know that so i don't know what the reasoning is at this point and we're getting late enough into the season that i'm starting to think we might not even see rosario this year which is absurd, whether or not you believe that the Mets have a shot at October. So, I don't know. It's There's a new line every day. Every time Azurbo Cabrera goes on the DL or has another error, or Jose Reyes just can't run out of baseball anymore. There's always, there's always an excuse, there's always a line, there's always a new reason. And we've seen how this organization has treated Michael Conforto as a top prospect. And they might be treating Rosario even worse, which is certainly saying a lot. folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for listening we do truly appreciate it thanks again to alex nelson for being a guest on the show we love having him back on amazing avenue related uh things so you can follow him on twitter at alx nelson and uh yeah he's a good dude we hope to have him back soon thanks again to all of our other contributors you can follow on twitter i'm at brian is an app chris is at chris mcshane steve saipa is at steve saipa brian wright is at brian wright 86 aaron york is at aaron p york and kate feldman is at kate e feldman you can of course go to amazingavenue.com to check out all this and more lots of draft recap and analysis by steve and others some really really good stuff there we also have, you know, game threads, game recaps, news, analysis, articles about why Curtis Granderson should be playing over Jay Bruce, stuff like that. So go to AmazingAvenue.com and check that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. If you could rate, review, and subscribe to the show in iTunes, uh, sorry, Apple Podcasts, have to get used to that, in Stitcher, in your podcatcher of choice, we would truly appreciate that. Or you can download the show directly from blogtalkradio.com. 
And as always, please email the show, podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com, and we will answer your questions. So uh, until next week, the Mets have a, a big, big series with the Nationals coming up. After we finished recording last night, the Mets won in spectacular fashion over the Cubs. So they're in pretty good space to bring this fight to the Nationals. Whether or not that happens, I guess, remains to be seen, but uh, hopefully they do it. So until next time, as always... Let's go, Max.